Okay, we'll start. Okay, as I said last night, this is a question and answer session. So, you have an opportunity here to ask questions if you want further kind of explanations or further clarification of the things I've been talking about over the last three nights or any of the instructions I've given in the mornings. Um, clarification about the practice or any questions about the practices or just general questions about Buddhism and I'll attempt to see if I can answer them um, but for it to work you've got to have some questions <laughs> yeah Yeah. But in the matter, I've been really missing the idea of joy or, or happiness as something to give or receive. And I was wondering whether there was, and somehow ease and um, peacefulness seem to get confused. Okay, well, this, uh, this is a question about happiness and the fact that I've kind of was withdrawn from the use of the word happiness with this, um, basically because, you know, as has been mentioned, I think it's a kind of can of worms which I don't really want to unpack <coughs> at this moment. And so, therefore, I've tended to gone for phrases which actually are derived from the canon, from, from the Pali canon, um, which in a way are a little bit more neutral than perhaps the word happiness it's a strange word, happiness, isn't it? It means so many things to so many different people. I think this is part of the reason why I don't tend to use it. The one thing I don't fight shy of is talking about joy. I think that's really important. Um, it's a very important factor, actually, on the path. It's there, I mean, the meta-practice that we're engaged in um, is part of a series, as probably many of you know, of four practices which are actually go under a title which is pretty untranslatable, called Brahma Viharas. Um, literally, it means to dwell with Brahma. You know, a Vihara is a dwelling place. And this was a metaphor that the Buddha used, and I only mention this briefly, it's a metaphor that the Buddha used, because if you said that to somebody in his time, um, actually, if you practice these, um, you will go and dwell with Brahma, it was equivalent to saying you will be liberated. So this is the reason why he uses this term. That's kind of a long way to getting to my point that I want to make, that actually the third of these practices is, is something called mudita. And mudita um, is often translated as sympathetic joy, which is a terrible translation of it. It's more like empathetic joy. And literally the really sort of most base translation of it is gentle joy. It's a gentle joyousness at good fortune in this world. And so that's, it's embedded in, in these, this series of practices already, and I think it's extremely important. Moreover, it's also to be found in something called the seven supports of awakening. Um, we have the factor of joy there as well, this factor called piti in Pali. Um, this is absolutely essential. Yeah, joyfulness is an absolutely essential. Happiness, I think, is is open to kind of lots of different interpretations. Uh, in fact, when the Buddha uses the word happiness, he just says, well, the greatest happiness is contentment. You know, sent, this is the greatest happiness. Actually, equanimity and contentment in this world. Um, so it's not the kind of happiness that we're often thinking about, happiness which is a, associated with certain events or certain pleasures, actually. Happiness and pleasure often get confused. And so this is partly the reason why I tend to shy away from the use of happiness. Certainly not joy, though. It's an absolute essential element of this path. Um, without it, it's pretty stark. It's pretty cold. You know? um, the one thing I was always very grateful for in my own training, that actually I came across Tibetans um, initially, because Tibetans are tremendously joyful. Um, they joke and laugh and do all sorts of things, and I've been at kind of big ceremonies with the Dalai Lama when, you know, for example, um, his chanting master starts off on one chant and he joins in on something else and they just fall around laughing for 10 minutes. 
You know, so there's that kind of lack of piety, and there's a kind of joyousness even behind these big so-called serious rituals that they engage in. And I think this is an essential factor of the path. Without it, it's I think I think it's like a soggy sponge. You know, we need we need this kind of upliftment also in our practice to keep on practicing. You know, it's absolutely essential part of it. So, you know, I wouldn't equate necessary happiness with joyfulness here. Because happiness, as I say, and I'm sure many people would probably consider this, A, it's banded around a lot these days. Politically, it's even been hijacked, the word happiness. Um, and also, I think it means such varying things to so many different people. I think we all possibly have much more of a sense of what joyfulness is in this life, whilst I might not able to be able to connect with your, in scare quotes, happiness here. So that's the reason why I don't tend to use this word. It's not a word the Buddha uses a lot, actually. And when he does use it, he uses equates it with being equanimity and contentment in, in our lives. Yeah. But I think joyfulness absolutely got to be there. <laughs> yeah. Mm. Yeah. Energy in the practice. Huh? Um, I, I'm, but I was just wondering if, if there is much in, in the Buddha on qualities of energy, as in the yoga tradi- yogic tradition that the Buddha came from. You know, where just dip, working on different qualities of energy. You no know, heavy, dull energies and lively, mm. dynamic energies and pure, more spiritual, more rarefied energies, you know, whether there's anything, any work of that kind. No, basically there isn't. And I think you must be referring to Rajas, Thomas and Sattva, are you here? No, these these terms are not used in this tradition at all. Um, We have two words, actually, that are used which cover this um, notion of energy. The one, literally, which translates as energy, which is the one I think I gave you the name of, virya. Virya. That becomes a perfection, by the way, in in Mahayana Buddhism. It becomes something to be perfected. There's another version, which is samavayama, which is actually the perfection or or the appropriate amount of effort that's required. Um, that will have varying degrees. Because notice the translation, it's usually translated as right effort, but the word samar actually means more like appropriate. Um, So it's the appropriate amount of effort required. Now, I'm sure we all know, even in meditation, there's the appropriate effort required. Try too hard, what do you get? A headache. (laughs) You know, try too little, well, I get those those dynamic duos, sloth and torpor, you know, coming along. You know, so it's actually getting balanced energy. But they don't speak about it as per the yogic tradition. Um, the yogic tradition, as we know it, it's actually is probably a later outgrowth. It's probably later than the time of the Buddha. I mean, we've got, we've got a, a sort of background of Upanishadic thinking and some of the practices that are coming out of that and Brahmanical thinking at this time. But we don't have really fully formed yoga tradition as it's probably understood because the kind of metaphysical underpinning for it, Sankhya, is actually much later. It occurs much later in Indian history. Um, so we don't get it in, in the same way. It hasn't, it hasn't been highly nuanced. However, there is one part of the tradition which is slightly later than the Buddha, which is called Abhidharma. Uh, and the Abhidhamma tradition will speak, for example, about mental physical states. And those mental physical states are either heightened, uh, malleable, flexible, pliant, or they're heavy. And they'll talk about these different states. But it's, again, it's not quite the same as Rajasthan and Sattva, uh, as it is within the yogic tradition. Yeah. Hi, yeah. Mm-hmm. With a dear friend, and realized later, oops, maybe I misunderstood because I thought that the benefactor piece, um, when I, immediately when I think of someone 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. Or not. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, well, actually, as well, the fact we have two separate categories here, they are two separate people. You know, the the, bene- the benefactor is somebody who actually can be quite distant from you. You know, it could be, for example, a school teacher, somebody who's helped you, somebody in your work or your profession who's given you a helping hand. In, you know, in your career or whatever. It could be somebody who, in a moment of crisis, who you don't really know that well, comes to your benefit and comes to your aid. As I said last night, actually benefactors can get extremely dis- distant because it could be the benefactor who's the unknown person who feeds me in some ways you know, by growing food. It could be that distant as well. Now, it's much more difficult to have a personal relationship, obviously, with that. But we are trying to call to mind somebody who has helped us in this way, but doesn't necessarily equate with being a a good friend as well. They may do, and there may be some degree of overlap between the two. But it's actually better to choose two separate figures for this. And the dear friend, um, well, I mean, it, it is somebody who's you know, really part of your life who you care for, who's already there. Now, actually, dear friends might not help you. You know, it might be a good, really old friend who you haven't seen for many years, um, who's there in your life still as somebody you think about and somebody who you have great affection for. In this. I mean, I certainly know in my life I've got lots of people who I hardly ever see these days who go back, you know, kind of 30, 40 years um, who are really important figures in my life and I would still cast as dear friends and I can wish them well in this. So we're keeping these two categories apart. Final part of the question, at this stage it's better to stick to the same person in each case. Um, it's very tempting, and I almost suggested it, that with the benefactor we could actually choose a different one every day if we really thought about it. There's so many people, um, I don't know if we really, really comprehend this, who help us in our lives. Really a tremendous number of people we um, should have gratitude for um, who've been present in our lives, often just for one instance where they've really benefited us and helped us um, and others who are there as almost constants. Yeah, in in the background, but you know, this is this is actually this part of the benefactor. I think is actually very much allied to gratitude and appreciation. Yeah. So it's opening up that sense as well. Now there are practices in certain forms of Buddhism which actually wholly concentrate on gratitude and appreciation, um, but I think it's actually much more implicit in this particular practice. But stick to the same people, being the, the simple answer to that bit. is the impression that we should try to be mindful all the time, um, you know, be in the present moment all the time. But of course that isn't even wise because we do have to plan, we do have to have goals, we, we do have to do things like that in our lives. At what point, and I, and I sometimes find that quite difficult, that thing, the difference between striving mm-hmm. and motivation, you know, a, a goal that is worth you know, aiming for. And, and it links to that lovely um, piece that you read, the poem about the bend in the road. Yeah. And at one level, it was great, you know, just enjoy the part of the road you can see, don't worry about what's around the bend. But part of our delight, joy, I don't know what we want to call it, is anticipation of, of lovely things. Where is there scope for that sort of thing as well? Okay, did everybody hear that question? It's really about the scope and the range of mindfulness. Um, you know, how much do <laughs> how much mindfulness do we need in our life? Does it? Because you know, it's the impression that we ought to be mindful all the time. Um, and then there was the kind of corollary to that, which is really about, of course, well, we do have to plan. We have to do have to do other dimensions of our life. And actually anticipation, which is actually not tied to the present moment, is often a big 
boon in life. We actually get a lot of pleasure out of the anticipation of something here. I think you would be terribly boring people if we were mindful all the time. <laughs> you know, I really do. Uh, um, but what I would say is I think partly because we hear mindfulness in one way. Mindfulness is many, many different things. Um, and I think what we've done in the Western world is we've sort of flattened it out. So we only hear it in one way. And I'm going to give, actually on the final evening, I'm going to give a whole talk on the, the sort of kind of range of mindfulness that's seen within these traditions because it's such an important part of what we're doing. And, you know, even as I said, even the practice we're doing, metta, is a form of mindfulness. It's actually a sati. It's actually called sati, which is actually the, uh, the term for mindfulness in Pali. Um, but it's a mindfulness that most people don't really comprehend because it's not like the sort of stuff that's done in the secular world in mindfulness-based therapies and approaches and all this sort of thing. Um, but it's still a mindfulness, but it's a mindfulness that uses, if you like, the constructive imagination to a degree, which is a very, very important part of it as well. One of the other dimensions that we forget is that actually even things like planning can be done mindfully. I know what I'm doing. Really, that's what, that's what mindfulness is. It's actually recollecting what we're doing and knowing at any given moment what I'm actually engaged in. I mean, the word itself, I'm kind of jumping ahead to what I'm going to say a little bit on whenever it is Tuesday night, isn't it? On Tuesday night, because the word mindfulness is derived from a Pali Sanskrit word which actually means to recollect something, to remember something. So... What is the opposite of this? Well, it's actually moving around the world fairly mindlessly, not actually knowing or recollecting what I'm engaged in at all. Yeah. So it actually it's quite possible, given this kind of definition I'm trying to give you a little bit of, of mindfulness, to actually be, for example, mindfully watching your soap opera. Because I know why I'm doing it. Yeah. I'm not just kind of coming in and slumping in front of the television. I know why I'm doing it. I might know that I'm doing this to relax myself, to have a break after work, or whatever it might be, but I'm recollecting why I'm doing it. It might be mindful sense of anticipation as well. Yeah. But it also might be the kind of more mindful presence that we speak about in you know, the generalized way that mindfulness has been spoken of. So I think actually mindfulness is many, many things. Yeah? But I don't think we can do it all the time, and I think it would be too vast a burden to be able to do it all the time. We need to actually um, draw in mindfulness in a lot of areas of life which in a sense are opaque to us, we don't see we're not engaged, we're not actually fully aware of our behaviour or why we're doing things. And it's particularly in those situations I think we need to be mindful and aware. I mean, awareness actually could be another translation that we could use for, for, for mindfulness in general. So I think part of the reason why we get this idea, you know, that of being mindful all the time, and actually I, I, don't think it's impo I don't think it's possible to be mindful in that sense all the time, always mindfully in the present Actually, I wouldn't get things done. <laughs> I mean, just on a really practical basis, I wouldn't get things done. Um, one of the beauties of actually, in a sense, um, of being in the world is actually we don't have to recall a lot of the things. We know what we're doing. You know, we often know, I mean, I don't have to think about going through a door. I know what a door is. I don't have to mindfully think about that door it's usually only when it doesn't work properly that I have to think about it. So mindfulness, I think, is a, is a, is a quality that's particularly, and this is, this is the area which I think really needs emphasising, it's particularly tied to ethics. It's very much tied to ethical behaviour. In fact, in the tradition, it's said that every genuine moment of mindfulness will pull in all of the ethical components. Yeah. 
but I'll explore that much more thoroughly when I talk about it on, tu- on Tuesday night. Yeah. So as a kind of response to what you said. So. May I just ask a bit about Please, the yeah. distinction between craving and, and having goals? Mm-hmm. Craving and having goals. Well, I think... Um, actually, there's two words used. I'm sorry so to keep... I'm sorry, but, to mean, yeah. I'm, I'm sorry, I mean striving. Striving, striving. okay. Well, striving is important. Um, I, don't think, um, I don't think we can do without it. Actually, there's a word, again, that's used, I'm sorry to burden you with Pali words, but I mean, there's a word that's used in Pali, which is actually the word desire. You can desire the good, for example. And it's, in a sense, it's a two-faced thing. It, it looks in two directions. It can look towards the wholesome, and it can look towards the unwholesome. And this word is chanda. It's actually a variable ethical quality. So... I can, here's the paradox in many senses in Buddhism, is that it's the desire to end desire. That's the paradox within it. And, of course, I think to get anywhere, even for you to be here, you've had to have a a desire to be here. You've had to have a desire for some of the, at least some of the results of what meditation can bring. Um, You might even have a desire to you know, change your life quite radically. You know, these are all wholesome, positive, good desires. And you know, um, if we drop that, I just think we end up as blocks of wood. <laughs> you know, we really, really need this. Uh, I, I, I tend to think also the Western world, um, it gets a bit funny about goals. You know, actually, if I speak to any of my Asian friends, you know, either in Sri Lanka or in, you know, in the Tibetan communities and that, why would they be practicing doing this stuff? They would quite happily say, because I want to attain awakening. Now, in the West, when you say to somebody, um, well, why are you practicing? And I go, I'm not really certain. Not really certain why I'm practicing. We'd, Christina Feldman and I were teaching in the States once, and we did this to the whole you know, group, actually twice the size of your group, this group here. It was over 100 people, and we kind of raised this question about why are you practicing? And people really didn't think they were practicing for awakening. And we kind of went, <laughs> why are you practicing then? <laughs> now, it may be that you never reach that goal, but I think we, all of us, to be engaged in anything, we have to have some goal orientation. You know? It's almost like the drive that gets us into doing it. You know, I, I suspect that everybody in this room is here because there's some dimension of their life they'd like to change. You know? Perhaps, you know, to be a bit kinder, to be a bit more compassionate in life. Um, not to be so reactive. I mean, these are all, if you like, interim goals on the way, and I think they're really important. Now, we can get goal-fixated, and I think that's where the heavy striving comes in. Um, But I do think it's absolutely necessary that we have goals that we aim for. I think it's also very important to be clear about what your goals are. Um... As I say, the tradition itself and um, people within the traditions are really practicing for what the tradition offers out as you know, a possibility, as I said last night, for all of us, which is the goal of being awake, you know, to be very, very awake in this life, to, be, you know, to nullify all of our destructiveness within this life. This is the goal that's held out. It's actually the ending of this repetitive cycle of behavior that we are entrapped in, and this cycle of behavior that's called sangsara. Now, I think you have to be clear about what you're doing, because I actually see many people practicing in the West, and really all they want is a better sangsara. (laughs) They don't really necessarily want to finish the the cycle of repetition. They just want a slightly better sangsara. But if that is the case, be clear about what you want. I think the goals are important. It may be actually in the course of doing it, that goal starts to change as you you engage in the practices. Um, But I don't think we're going to get anywhere if we kind of don't know why we're sitting, why we're engaging. Because it's not easy, is it? 
you know, it's not an easy process. And I think, you know, um, there can be a lot, a lot of a lot of doubt arises if I don't know. I mean, I regularly go back and ask myself the question, why have I been doing this for so long? Yeah. Why have I been doing it? Because I actually want to kind of reaffirm um, that this is absolutely important stuff in my life. Yeah, this is really the most important, most exciting, most wondrous um, stuff to change uh, yourself. And obviously, by changing yourself, you change and not change others, but you touch others in different ways. Yeah, and this is a very, very important dimension. Now, whether that's your dimension, only you can answer. You know, but I think you have to ask it, and I think you have to have those goals, and I think you have to put in, because the effort is another part of it, you know, the earlier question here. The effort is part of what we might call striving, but it's getting the effort right. Yeah. I mean, I used to see um, practitioners, Western practitioners in particular, um, who were really into heavy striving in, in the Tibetan community, and that, you know, they'd want to do so many thousand prostrations in a day or something like this and they were competing with the guy next door who did hundred more than him or something you know um and this was a big part of it and this this simply wasn't part of the tibetan community um at all um a friend of mine who's i've known ever since he was about 16 or so who's now the dalai lama's translator um, I was once trying to explain to him what the word manana meant in Spanish. And I kind of explained it to him, and he looked at me and then said, I don't think we have any word in Tibetan that expresses such urgency. <laughs> it's a completely different relationship to <laughs> To time and striving and everything. I hope that went some way to responding to your questions anyway. Yeah, again, if less of I presume everybody heard that because I, I, I think there is, there's a lot. I mean, we cannot abandon our Westernness. You know, if we've been brought up and born in Christian Judaic cultures, that's a huge part of our inheritance, it's a huge part of our conditioning, and we're not going to abandon it overnight. So, actually, we come into <clears throat> often things like Buddhist practice, even if you want to call yourself a Buddhist or not, even meditation practices actually derive from this tradition. We come into these Buddhist practices often with a lot of Christo-Judaic projections onto it. It's not helped, actually, um, and I know I'm kind of saying this thing quite often, it's not helped that, that most of the words that have been used to translate Buddhist concept have been derived from those Christo-Judaic cultures as well because actually the words don't map on to the original languages at all you know so for example we start talking about monasteries well actually there's no such thing as a monastery yeah the word actually means a dwelling place you know there's no such thing as a monk the actual word bhikkhu in pali which is the one that's usually translated as monk or bhikkhuni if it's a woman which is translated as nun actually means a beggar or a sharer yeah. So these, even the language we're using puts it into the realm of Christian Judaism here, and particularly Christianity. Um, and so it gives us a very skewed vision often what the, about, of what these practices are about. The one thing that's absolutely right, and this is what you, I think you indicated here, is the Buddha places responsibility firmly in our hands. You know, not in the hands of even himself, in his own community, in his own time. I mean, there's a very famous discourse or sutta 
that's often referred to. And I think it's rightly famous because it's so much the opposite of a lot of the authoritarianism of religious traditions. Because in this sutta, basically, I won't go through all the categories, but basically the Buddha says, don't believe a word I say because I say it. You know, check it against your own experience. Yeah. The invitation was to come and see. Yeah. As I said in one of the talks the other night... And so he was putting the responsibility firmly on the individual for their own liberation. He said, I can point the way to liberation, I cannot give anybody it. So all of the work has to be done by you. Now, I think that's a double-edged sword for a lot of Western people because we're used to, I think, religious systems and philosophies and spiritualities as being authoritarian. Tell us what to believe and actually, in this tradition, you don't really have to believe anything. In fact, you're better off not believing. Yeah. Belief is, is, is a kind of blindness that gets in the way of actually seeing what something is. Belief is often t- shackled to something that's not seen, either. Something metaphysical as well. And, and the Buddha himself, in his own, you know, in his, in his discourses and that, kind of, he actually mocks the whole system of beliefs. Yeah, he really does. He mocks it. Um, he makes jokes about it continuously, about you know, particularly his own relig- the religious traditions that were around in India at that time, which are full of all kinds of weird beliefs. You know, and he just jokes about them. Um, but we are very, very shackled to this idea. We're often shackled as well to ideas about what it means to live a spiritual life as well. Um, we come from traditions often which have a great deal of piety within them. Again, from, back, from part of my own background, I remember being in one of the monasteries in, in South India, which is where I did quite a bit of my training. And I was the only Westerner on the, uh, on the, um, in the monastery and on the settlement with amongst lots and lots of Tibetans. And, and we occasionally used to get other Western monks coming down from the north, coming to study just for a few days or a few weeks. And I remember a couple coming along, and this Tibetan nudged me. And he goes, can you tell me why Western monks always look so miserable? <laughs> and because there's a sort of piety that we come. You know, it's kind of like the cleric who has to be looking pious. And, I mean, as I've said earlier on, Tibetans are just not like that, and, and not, nor are some of the other monks and monastics who I've lived with over the years. Um, I've seen a great deal of joyfulness in this, you know, coming back actually to your original question, a great deal of joyfulness about living this life, not, uh, not this kind of false piety. Although we can't abandon it very quickly, I think we have to try and really orient ourselves into different ways of looking at um, what we do. I, I think even meditation, that quotation I gave you from a Sri Lankan friend of mine, you know, that meditation, when Westerners get it, makes their lives even more miserable, is, you know, I, I've seen it because people try too hard. They want to be perfect at it. They get a wrong expectation of what it's about, a wrong image of what it's about. And then suddenly... There you are, plunged in beating yourself up about something else which actually is supposed to liberate you. <laughs> There's the paradox. You've been given a tool which can help to liberate you from all this self-critic and everything, and now we suddenly turn into another weapon to flagellate ourselves with. Yeah. So it's really coming into the right relationship and listening very, very closely sometimes to the instructions you know, about how we hold what we're doing. You know. It's not like over-fixation with the breath. You know, the amount of times I've come across people who've been practicing for long periods of time, and no matter how many times you tell them, it's not about absolutely staying rigidly with the breath, and it's about a process of actually being able to observe thoughts against the background of the breath. They still want to stay with the breath. There's not a lot of insight actually gained by just staying with the breath. You'll get concentration, but you won't get insight. So it's this process of movement backwards and forwards between this constant, which is our breathing, and this other thing, which is you know, which is our thought processes and physical processes that we can observe against that background. Yet, often 
again, we want to be perfect about something. Well, it seems much easier to be perfect about holding on to the breath. The other seems a bit messy, doesn't it? Drifting backwards and forwards between the breath and thought and breath and thought and thought and breath. It seems very, very much messy to just staying with the breath. (laughs) And these are the kinds of things that we introduce in it, which really, in some senses, I think, skew our understanding of what's going on. So I'm sorry, this is a long answer to a quite short question. (laughs) Yeah. Mm-hmm. What we're, um, you know, even even in a lot of instructions given this week, it's about do this or do that. But there is very little um, recognition or insight and wisdom that we already have gathered over our entire lives. Mm-hmm. That are because I, mean, I don't know how to say this properly, but to me it was like. When I found the Buddhist teachings, it was like, oh, finally, somebody that understands what I'm thinking. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, rather than, I, you know, it was like finding home rather than finding a, a way to solve things, which is also, of course, the, it's not only. What am I trying to say? I'm trying to say that there's very little emphasis on what we already know and what you know, the wisdom that humans can gather through the rest of just by Okay, that's, that's an interesting observation. I think the way that I see it is that it's implicit that you already understand a lot of this. I certainly know when I'm sitting up here and you know, giving you some of the teachings around you know, the, you know, explicating the Buddha's teaching, really what I feel I'm doing often is reminding you of things that you know. You know, I don't think there's probably not a lot I've said over these over the three talks I've given that actually you probably don't know. You might not have reflected on it, but you might not. I don't think there are things which are completely unknown to people. You know that we have capacities. You know, for example, for friendliness and kindness and clarity and calmness and that. I think we all know that. We just don't reflect on it that we have capacities for destructiveness and that. Again, sometimes we don't want to know about these things. But in the courses of our lives, of course, we gather a tremendous amount of information. We gather a lot of insights about it. But sometimes, and I think this is the big underlying problem that, that in a sense, the Buddha is trying to awaken us to, is actually we start to ignore those insights. You know? We can see, for example, the benefit of being... Uh, more ethical, more wholesome in our lives and less destructive. But we often opt for the being the destructive. Yeah. And what I think the Buddha's teaching is trying to do and those who try to explicate his teaching is trying to remind you about those insights that you probably have had again. Now, as I said, I think right in the first talk, this is what he calls ignorance. But it's not, unfortunately, it's a word in English that doesn't sound very good. You know, it almost sounds very highly critical. It sounds, you know, the word I used was pejorative to people. And it's not meant to be. It's just the fact that as human beings, often what we do is we overlook or ignore dimensions of experience which we already perhaps have had a degree of insight into. And we opt for the easy it's far easier, for example, to fall into habit patterns than to break habit patterns by moving into something that we know is possibly better for us. So we ignore it. So, you know, kind of, I, I, I agree with you. I think there, you know, I agree that I, I think that, that we are not saying anything new. I don't think the Buddha is saying anything new. What he's doing is structuring it and laying it out and making it very, very clear, and he's giving us strategies of how to deal with this material, and a lot of it is diagnostic. He's saying, basically, we've got a problem. You know, and if you want to solve this problem, you've got to understand the problem, first of all. Because you know, otherwise, there's going to be sneaky bits that come around and get you still. 
Um, and so we've got to understand the problem correctly. Now, aspects of that I think we have quite a lot of insight into. Others, perhaps not so much so. Sometimes we have insights into the positive, wholesome dimensions of being, and sometimes we don't. So a lot of it, I think, is, is, is helping us to remember. I think this is part of the process. It's helping us to remember. I find there's a lot of positivity in, in the Buddha's teaching about this, a lot of positivity. You know, the fact he gives us the possibility of, you know, and says it's possible for all of us, and I do want to keep on emphasizing all of us, to gain clarity and insight and awakening. You know, and I think that's a fantastic thing. It doesn't matter where you've been, what you've done, it's all possible for everybody to do that. And uh, I think that's one of his great gifts to humanity, reminding people that they have this potentiality uh, within them. There's one right at the back, and then... May I ask two questions, one about the practice and one general? Okay. <laughs> Yeah. So I'm wondering if if that's true in particular the person you use. So what I'm wondering is it is it possible to um, is it a useful strategy to target the best practice if you like? For instance on, on people who are first year, mm. would it be a benefit to actually choose particular people or people you actually have a particular problem with, say at work or in a relationship, and then use the practice to help your relationship? Okay. It is worth it is worth targeting. I mean, I actually think this is a very practical teaching. It's a very practical. You know, it's a very practical thing that we're engaged in. Yes, you know, target people. Target those. You know, particularly the difficult. Target the people who you think um, you know are a real problem in your life. And and no matter how hard you've tried in other ways, they continue to you know kind of push your buttons. Um, it's. It's, I think it's a very, very useful practice to be able to do that. It's not, we don't always have to do it, but I think it will help to orient us. Now, I think as I s- said, I can't remember, in possibly one of the um, kind of instruction periods I gave, that actually even if, even if I start to develop a more wholesome attitude towards somebody who's difficult in my life, they might still continue to be difficult. Yeah, and I think you've just got to take that as a ground base. You know, because I am thinking positive thoughts isn't going to change them. Yeah, but what it will do is it will stop me from suffering. It might actually change them in the sense of their response to you. If you are, for example, your body language isn't saying something which is kind of aggressive, um, if you're not kind of spitting out words at them. <laughs> in this way if there's a generally friendlier attitude it might actually change their response to you as well but we can't take it that it's going to be absolutely guaranteed because I'm developing a a more friendly attitude that is automatically going to transfer to them here in regard to those close to you yes why not I mean this this is a very very useful practice family you know family can be both the difficult person and the beloved as well sometimes you know, it can wax and wane between the two. What, of course, we are practicing is for is to develop our minds in such a way that we move out with a friendlier attitude towards everyone who we engage with. Now, we have to start with people we know. And I think that's partly what you're saying in your question is, you know, in that targeting, will it spread out? Yes, it will. Because we've developed that, you know, friendlier, much more... Um, friendlier orientation of mind towards others. The two categories we're going to come up to are the ones really at the are the incredibly important ones. What I call the, the neutral person, the person I don't have any feelings about whatsoever, and the person who's difficult in your life. And that's why they're left till last, because we're building on those who we can really work with initially. And they're moving up towards the more difficult categories. I actually think, personally, the neutral category is the most difficult out of them all. Sometimes people even have difficulty recalling to mind somebody who doesn't fall into the like or dislike category. (laughs) 
I had this somebody with somebody on one of the long retreats once here at Gaia House who said, you know, every time I, every time I call to mind somebody who's neutral, they suddenly fall into the like or dislike them. <laughs> yeah. But it will help us, I think, to um, orient our minds in a different way, minds and bodies, actually, in a different way towards people. Second question. <laughs> Mm-hmm. And um, it does raise a question because I hear the ones that you often say, I know you're joking, but terrible translation. Yet I hear it said time and time again here at Guy House and mm. other retreats by teachers, mm. some of whom are training the next generation of teachers. Yeah. Now, um, is, this a pro- is this a concern, not from an academic point of view, but from the point of view of the teachings being a maximum benefit? I think it is a real concern, actually. I, I'm, this, is, this is one I'm very um, personally concerned about and hopefully trying to rectify because one of the big problems is, um, and I, think, I don't know if it's just a British problem, but people are reluctant to learn languages. You know? And I think it is particularly a British problem. Um, but I do think that anybody who's going to be teaching, even if they're not fluent in these languages, which takes a long time anyway, or to have a good um, relationship with those languages, to be able to, con- to convey the terms properly to others so that we don't get left with this Christianized jargon. I mean, I get very disheartened when I look at popular books on Buddhism and I keep seeing dukkha translated as suffering. You know, it's, it's only telling a partial story. Because actually, if I look out at you and I say, let, let, let me put on my bleakest accent here, you're all suffering. <laughs> you know, you probably go, no, I'm not. You know, I'm a bit bored. <laughs> well, you know, the, the cushion's a little uncomfortable. <laughs> you know, I'd actually rather go to bed. You know, all these things, you know, but it wouldn't qualify as full-blown dukkha. But actually, as soon as I'm saying those things, the cushion isn't comfortable enough. I'm a bit bored and irritated by what's going on up front. You know, there isn't enough light. There's a draft coming in through the window. This is all dukkha. You know, this is all dukkha. And, And that's just one of the most important terms there. You know, when we hear... I mean, the word mindfulness, by the way, that, that, that's so popular these days, and as I said, I'm not going to be able to shift this one, but the word mindfulness is actually derived from the Gospels. Yeah, that's where the word mindfulness comes from, and it was used as the first translation in 1881, and nobody's ever changed it yet. Yeah. Now, I can't fault the original translators because they didn't have anything to work on, but what I can do is fault the people who continue to repeat this. So I think to kind of answer your question, I think it's absolutely vital that the people who are sitting up here in my position have an understanding at least of how these languages work and you know, be able to convey some of the meanings far better to people like yourselves who are not going to go out and look at these languages. But I think it's incumbent on us to really, really know them to a degree. Um, to be able to communicate what's going on in these teachings much, much better. And actually, because the jargon that's used is so religious, and this is specifically what the Buddha was getting away from, was religious language. You know, he, he takes terms within his own culture, he twists them, he makes mockery of them, he you know, turns them upside down. You know, he take a term from what we now call Hinduism and he'll... He'll, he'll make it mean it's opposite, you know, deliberately. And he's doing this because he doesn't want to be embedded in a religious language. You know? And yet we speak in very religious... If we start talking about monks and monasteries and suffering and all these sort of things, this sounds very familiar to you all, but it absolutely, totally, I think, obscures how radical what the Buddha is saying is. Sorry, it's taken a long time to get there. But, you know, I think this is a very, very important issue. Do you find there's an openness to hearing this? I, actually, I was... 
Yeah, it is entrenched. I think talking to other teachers sometimes, I do find that their views are a bit, in, a bit more entrenched. I think it's difficult, as I say, because people don't want to actually spend the effort to go into the original languages. You know, I mean, let, let me give you one more example. Um, the words that are used to translate what everybody will say is the beginning, the fountainhead of all Buddhist teaching, four noble truths. Well, there's a Pali scholar I know in, who used to teach in Cambridge um, who says, out of all the possible translations you can have for this, the term Arya Satya, which is actually the terms which are translated into four noble truths, four noble truths is the worst. Yeah. It's the absolute pits. Yet, I don't know anybody who doesn't refer to the four noble truths. I know, but Steve and I had this conversation. <laughs> That's reductionism for you. <laughs> well, actually, I mean, the term literally means ennobling, as I think I conveyed to you the other day. You know, and I actually think that means something to us. It's ennobling. This activity we're engaged in is, you know, it's not just to kind of make us miserable. You know, by looking at a dukkha, look at how it's caused, look at you know, its possible cessation. This is not to make us miserable, it's actually to ennoble us in our own lives. You know, the goal of the path is it enlightenment. No, that's something that occurred in the West in the 18th century. You know, in the early 19th century, in the enlightenment. You know, what the term actually means is waking up. The word Buddhism is completely meaningless. You know, it's a Western invention. I could go on, couldn't I? <laughs> you can tell I'm on my hobby horse now. You shouldn't have got me going. <laughs> well, it's all in my book. Yeah, it's coming on. But, you know, the, um, the term Buddhism, let me just finish off on this one. It's completely meaningless. The only possible way of translating it would be wake-upism. <laughs> Sorry, that went on for a long time. But just take one more question and we must finish. Yeah. Um, I was wondering if you could say a bit more about that. And I think you said something about um, trust in something. Understood. Yeah. yeah. Okay, I don't know if everybody heard that, but the, que- the, quest- the question is about something I said the other day about the, um, in a sense, the antidote to sceptical doubt is the development of confidence. And I also mentioned that you know, this was confidence in something because of something that we have already understood here. This is very, this again is a very important term because here's a back into the old, other realm again here. Because the word, when you see it in books, and it's off putting to a lot of people, particularly if they want to kind of escape from religious traditions, the word is sada in Pali, and it's usually translated as faith. And that's not what it means. It means to develop a growing trust and confidence in the teaching. And I think this is a basic element of learning anything. That we have to develop confidence or have some degree of confidence. I mean, it might be that we go, I don't know, to a new medical practitioner. We don't particularly necessarily trust them until they do something or perhaps prescribe something uh, that works. And then we have got a growing sense of confidence in that person. Or, let's take another example. If you go just in an ordinary learning situation, not in, on, a, on a kind of a Buddhist or anything like that learning situation, but if you go to a teacher, you expect them to know their subject. You know, when you um, go to a university, you go to a school, you assume that the teacher who's teaching you knows what they're talking about. You know, and you see that, and it grows as you start exploring the material yourself here. So there has to be initial trust and confidence in this. Now, in the Buddhist tradition, this is the foundation, actually, of the learning process. That, um, for example, let's take the starting place, which is the starting place of dukkha. Well, dukkha can't be a belief. 
It's a starting place that has to be founded on something empirical, something I understand in my own life, that there is dukkha, there is a sense of dissatisfaction, there is a sense of, you know, of pain and frustration and all of the many, many terms that we can use to translate this word. Um, but it has to be seen in your own life. I don't know anybody other than those who are born into Buddhist traditions, and that's an interesting one, which I'm not going to go into, but I don't see anybody in the Western world who's entered into this path, either the path of meditation or Buddhism, it doesn't really matter. I'm not personally concerned about whether people call themselves Buddhists or not. Um, but they enter into this path, and they come into it because they recognize or understand there is something like dukkha going on in their lives. Yeah. I, as I said, I suspect that everybody is here because they suspect that, that something is there that they might like to change in their lives. That's not quite right here. And so that becomes the initial platform. Now, if one sees that, then you can start to build on that. You know, you've seen something, you've investigated it to a certain extent. You might even see one of the things I suggested when I talked about it the other night, that actually a lot of the dukkha that is produced is actually the products of our own mind. You know, the way that I approach things. It's not the thing itself, it's the way that I approach it. It's the pain that I might have that gets magnified under the lens of the mind. Yeah. And, the, and the narratives. You know, um, the kind of anxieties that grow up. I tell you who's great on this, Woody Allen. <laughs> Have you ever seen it, you know, when he's got a little twinge, you know, it's got to be a tumour. <laughs> you know, this, this is, uh, in fact, the mind that's producing dukkha, not just experiencing, you know, the pain of the twinge or, or whatever it might be. Um, so our minds are implicated in this, and we might begin to get a glimpse of that another stage. So you get this growing sense of confidence. Now, the big one, of course, the idea that there might be something which we call a liberation from these habit patterns is a far-off promissory note. Yeah, But I think if we can see it in small ways, there's a growing confidence that it might be possible in this big way here. Yeah. And so you begin to, for example, start to trust the teachings. More fundamental than that, and this is something that the Buddha said very strongly, that we start to have trust and confidence in ourselves, in our possibilities of being able to do things. Yeah. Ultimately, towards the end of his life, he said, you know, he said to his closest disciples, he said, have no, have no other refuges other than yourself. Yeah. Take no other teachers. Be islands unto yourself. Yeah. Now, what happened after his death? You know, kind of got a guru explosion. But in his lifetime, he was saying that people should have trust and confidence in their own ability to do this and not look necessarily towards others to do that. So I think this is a really fundamentally important dimension of it. Um, but it is trust and it is confidence and it's not faith here. Now, if you take the, just, just to finish off, you take the two examples, trust and confidence. Well, trust and confidence, as you've heard me say repeatedly now, is based on our growing understanding of something. Faith, as it's usually taken, is usually adherence, particularly in a lot of the theistic traditions, is usually adherence to a set of something like catechisms a set of propositions. You know, the Christian catechism is a very good example of that. I'm not denigrating it because it's so totally different from Buddhism. And, but just really marking that difference by saying, actually, what makes you a Christian is that you believe, you know, I believe in God, the Father, and the Son, and all of these things. And it's about belief. It's, and that's real faith in that sense. A faith in things I can't see. Yeah. I can't literally see. Now, the Buddha, I think this is what gels with a lot of people in the Western world, is very, very much in line with, in many senses, the empiricism that we've grown up. He, he really thinks that we ought to be able to see it, taste it, touch it, smell it. You know? um, in fact, he's very, um, he makes a joke out the idea of, of, of God-like figures in general. 
um, because actually... I mean, I'll give you one example, and I must finish this evening. He gives a wonderful example in one of the suttas where he said, you know, the search for a creator god was a bit like this. He says, um, somebody comes along and says, I'm in love with the most beautiful girl in the world. And then I say, well, do you know her name? And he goes, no. Do you know where she lives? No. Do you know what her family is? No. And there's a whole list of questions like this. And the Buddha just says at the end of this, don't you think bhikkhus or monks, don't you think bhikkhus, somebody who thinks in this way, turns out to be rather stupid? <laughs> it's a big put down you know, about the idea. Because it's like kind of saying, well, I believe in this, but I can't see it, taste it, touch it. I don't even know what it is, where it is. And so, you know, this, the, the, the confidence he's saying is confidence in a growing understanding of things that we can actually see and perceive for ourselves. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.